This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing Le Silence de la Mer, and I'm going to start us off. The Silence of the Sea is a French film from 1949. It's based on a book written in 1942 during the occupation of France by Nazi Germany. A German officer is quartered in the home of an elderly French gentleman and his niece. The officer is very polite, but he is still unwelcome, and his French hosts refuse to speak to him. The officer develops a habit of knocking at the door, coming in without permission, and just kind of talking at them. Over the course of his monologues, it becomes clear that he is highly cultured and has great respect for French culture, but is deeply naive about Germany's intentions in France. The officer wants France and Germany to wed. He wants the Germans to read French literature and the French to listen to German music. He admits the Germans can be a bit brutish. They need France to help civilize them. He makes affectionate reference to Aristide Briand, the French prime minister who proposed a version of the European Union in the 1920s. He compares the relationship between France and Germany to the relationship between Beauty and the Beast. Eventually, he meets up with some German officers. They laugh at him and pour cold water on his idealistic notions. They plan to subjugate and exploit the French and to destroy the influence of French culture. Horrified, the officer demands to be transferred to the Eastern Front. He tells his French hosts all about this. They finally speak to him, bidding him adieu. On his last day at their home, he is presented with a book encouraging him to disobey criminal orders. Then the film ends, leaving us to imagine the officer's fate. I like this film a lot. I recently had someone come over to my house unannounced. There is something fundamentally unnerving about losing control over your space, even if the visitor is well-meaning and polite. The officer in this film is extremely well-meaning, but the mere fact that he is there without permission makes his hosts deeply uncomfortable. He tries to avoid interfering with their routine but his presence is intrinsically disruptive. When he's gone, they are distracted by the knowledge that he will soon return, and when he's there, they are waiting for him to go. In the United States, we take this sort of thing very seriously. The Third Amendment to the U.S. Constitution expressly forbids the quartering of soldiers. Most U.S. states also have some version of castle doctrine, allowing Americans to forcibly defend their dwellings from intruders. We are used to treating people's homes with a certain level of respect. When that respect isn't shown, we get offended, and when governments systematically disrespect the integrity of people's homes, we get a bit huffy. The officer made me a bit huffy. Beauty and the Beast is a story about Stockholm Syndrome, about a woman who falls in love with her captor. I've known a non-trivial number of women who have gotten into abusive relationships with men, in part because they've seen the Disney adaptation too many times. To a large degree, the relationship today between France and Germany resembles what the officer describes. Under President Macron, France has fallen in love with its captors, enacting the very labor market reforms that the Germans have used to crush and subjugate their workers. What was distinctive and interesting about France is slowly being eroded in the name of economic competitiveness. Terrified to end up like Italy, Spain, or Greece, France will be little more than West Francia when all is said and done. The fact that the Nazis had planned to do something even worse to France does not excuse the officer's vision. I'm not a nationalist. I think some kind of federated republic in Europe could work. 
But the kind of union the Germans have pursued runs on economic bullying. Germany uses its position in the European Union to abuse the periphery and to abuse the European working class. No amount of respect for French literature makes this okay. At one point in the film, there is a discussion of duty and about whether we can be sure where our duty lies. It made me think of the analytic continental division and specifically the antagonism between Bentham's utilitarianism and Kant's deontological system. Both the Benthamites and the Kantians think they know what they ought to do, and both are too damn certain about everything. They both start with the individual. For Bentham, it is the individual who is the bearer of pleasures and pains, while for Kant, it is the individual who must autonomously submit to moral dictates of capital R reason. But it's also possible to start with larger abstractions, like the common good or the good of the universe, God, the state, the class, the family. If we are participants in these abstractions, if we emerge from them, then their good is also our good. But since we are embodied and partial, we cannot know everything we need to know to be sure about how the good applies to these abstractions. We cannot feel what every part of the universe feels. We cannot know the mind of God. We cannot even know what it's like to be in other social roles. Often parents can only dimly grasp the good of their children, and children can only dimly grasp the good of their parents, even if the parents and children know each other very well. If we realize how much we cannot know about what we ought to do, we move more prudently through life. We do our best, without deceiving ourselves into thinking we can get everything right through some rote moral schema, some set of fixed rules to be committed to memory and never thought about again. In France, postmodern thinkers have criticized the dogmatism of the Benthams and the Kants. But then there's still the question of what is to be done. What is the French alternative? France's intellectuals haven't been able to articulate one or to effectively politicize the alternatives that have been articulated. Into this vacuum steps Marine Le Pen with her Gaullist insistence that France must remain French. But what does it even mean for France to remain French if the French are unable to articulate a positive vision? Is France to be French in the sense that Hungary is Hungarian? The Hungarian government is nominally committed to resisting the EU on cultural matters, while it defers to its masters on every important economic issue. The Hungarian response to the EU is so vapid and so empty, and yet, Hung and yet Hungarians vote for it because left-wing alternatives are so poorly thought out and so poorly articulated. This is not a call for the left to be dogmatic, but it is a call for the left to have constructive projects, however provisional they might be. The left's domestication by the capitalist university system has encouraged academics to write trite, self-serving critiques. The gap between what is publishable and what is politically tractable grows larger year by year. The more the academics are sucked up into this little world of shit, the more the frustrated people turn to the performative faux alternatives of Le Pen and Orban. As I watched this film... I kept wanting the French to do something, argue with the officer, fight back, resist the occupiers, but all we get is the performative negative resistance of the endless silent treatment. Today's performative resistors are anything but silent. They talk and talk, but for each other, and not for the workers, for the people whose toil supports the university system. I watch American academics screech about Roe v. Wade, while the cost of living soars, and the gentle laborer suffers endless indignities. Those that have stayed academically focused have been totally broken by the publish or perish imperatives of the academy. Those that have turned to public intellectualism have been broken by the market's incessant demand for content that fuels the culture war. Only those with the financial security of Friedrich Engels can say anything at all of value. Even among these, few are able and willing to do so. 
the person who came into my house unannounced last week was not well-mannered or polite. He is one of those deeply ideological types, the sort of person who doesn't recognize that writing a book is work, the sort of person who thinks if you're not employed, you're a leech, no matter what you're doing. It was as if the system itself had invaded the house. He came in shouting while we were recording the previous episode of this podcast. My girlfriend intercepted him and stopped him from interrupting the show. I had this experience firmly in mind while I watched this film, and I kept seeing my intruder in the officer. He thinks himself justified because he came with positive intentions, but for the past week I keep catching myself worrying that he'll come back. This undoubtedly colored my interpretation of the work. I cannot really sympathize with the officer, at least not this week. Could Helen? Could Nina? Let's find out. And let's start with Helen. Okie dokie. Well, I do love this film a lot. Um, I'd forgotten how much I loved it, aesthetically in particular, although aesthetically often I feel like an aesthetic that I jive with and I think that one jives with really when one isn't just reading something from an, you know, with ideological sort of... Um, I, will haste, I don't want to say the word perspective because I don't think it's like it goggles or anything like that, but, you know, that, that there is a truth in... Um, an aesthetic that emerges from something truthful. So the film opens with a sort of statement, I think it's taken from the novel that this um, film is an adaptation of, saying that this isn't, you know, sort of like a, a moral prescription of what French people should do or should have done. And, you know, in a way, art isn't really supposed to be prescriptive. And um, I think that... It's interesting how this film unfolds and how it sort of folds in on itself at the end. And I think there are um, limitations to it, but I think this film is nearly perfect and it is only nearly perfect because it is so imperfect. So the question that really came to me was like, what is this question of protest? Um, I think maybe we're going to talk about this in the B-side and later in the conversation. So I think like there's a lot of... Um, philosophical questions as to the question of, of protest and obviously something that very quickly comes to mind given our um you know cultural situation right situation right now is you know the, the statement of those who are silent or on the side of the oppressor and i think in certain situations that is the case but again there has been um in this sort of 20th century it was the met gala yesterday which reminds me of the met gala last year my response to the met gala last year was um let them eat political slogans. So we have so much of this like sloganeering, the aesthetics of the left has, has been described in terms of like the corporate capture of the university. Um, and what we have instead of place, in, in the place of politics is um, pure, uh, a pure veil to hide the fact that we're not doing politics at all. And so we have questions like, you know, silence, if you're silent, you're on the side of the oppressor, the oppressor, it really fucking depends, right? It really depends. <laughs> and um, we talked about this act accordingly idea last last week, but part of what it is, I think, to be, at least philosophically speaking, as a, a leftist is to be open to contradiction. And to um, that means that in the ever unfolding imperfect present, which is the moment from which political action or, or politics can take place, is to be open to the fact that you know, the situation changes. Um, and uh, yes, this sort of shorthand, this, this heartwarming shorthand doesn't really do, do us anything. But at the same time, I do believe in certain situations, silence is not useful. And I think that there is a sort of a nihilism 
at the end of this film, which I think actually symbolically is interesting because we have a wider, it is quite, you know, it's obviously a black and white film, obviously, but it is quite um, symbolically drawn. It's quite, um, it's quite reduced. It's quite stark. Um, I think there's imagery that's very uh, representative of wider ideas. So we have the image of these three people, potentially um, the niece and the uh, German officer representing France and Germany. So their individual actions aren't going to quite reflect maybe philosophically what is the quote unquote right solution. And I do think there is a difference between, um, you know, in the dialectic of the personal and the universal, there's often a sort of um, reversal or collapsing in in terms of the dynamics that are appropriate in one situation and another. Um, but, you know, I think what is also interesting is obviously this guy, Ed Brenak, is this very sophisticated man. And in a, in a way, there's a, it is dialectical. There is a, he's very annoying in a way, but also there is this sort of humanization to him as a Nazi. And I think this is a really important idea that to humanize the Nazis is precisely to convey just how utterly grotesque Nazism is, you know. <laughs> Um, it, it, to 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 paint, um, you know, individuals and, and groups in history who are an emergent of uh, a situation at a time as just um, figures uh, impossible to understand. We're not like them. Whatever really doesn't capture just quite how horrendous um, ideology can be, and especially ideology that's related to. Purity, well, I mean, it's the ideology of promise, which underpins sort of all sorts of dynamics um, related to human subjectivity and society. So he is sort of a predator, and then you know France is the prey, and there's there's lots of uh, ways in which this dynamic is described. As you say, Benjamin, he talks about the beauty and the beast, and when he like <laughs> tells the story of the beauty of the beast, you suddenly realise like how absolutely god awful. I mean, that's obviously one interpretation of the fable, but like often these. Um, moral tales really when you break them down are just absolutely horrendous it's sort of like this ugly man you know that this woman accepts and as soon as this horrible beast and she sort of accepts him and then oh yeah she takes that action and it's all i mean there are multiple ways of interpreting it but the way he describes it you're like this is atrocious and he's already waiting for france to to yield to him and i think that the niece represents france in a way um and so this idea that he's the predator and france is the prey in a way, you know, she resists him. She resists. She doesn't speak for the entirety of the film where he's there. And in that resistance, he, at a certain point, has to, he realizes to save this woman or France sort of, at a bigger level. And I'll get on to you know, the dynamics about France and what he sees in France later on. But, you know, he has to um, sort of kill himself to free her, which is an interesting idea, but again, pretty nihilistic. And I think that there is more of uh, the self-sacrifice is often the most um, cowardly action. But he is, you know, what this film also gets really right about the Nazis is like this guy is like very sophisticated and educated and cultured or whatever, but he's an absolute Orientalist prick. He does say that, you know, Germany has music and he's a, mus- a composer and has a musician, but he's, you know, France is, he's like, c'est l'esprit, le pense, la pensée, you know, like all this kind of stuff. That he's like, it's this this mystical, magical kind of unicorn land of, of art and thought. Um, 
and he, he says that this living room is a soul. You know? And I think it's quite interesting. But I think what a lot of us have known personally, these sort of hippie fascists, that like, you know, um, are Orientalist and racist precisely because they seem to be the opposite, because they elevate the other um, to this magical status, which which then encourages a um, a momentum to to capture and to take it for themselves. Um, yeah, I, I'm just trying to think of like what to what to save. Um, I think yeah, there's something Oedipal in this trilogy of characters. He can't have France and his idea is sustained by this fantasy. And then when he actually discovers what the other German officers are saying in terms of their intention to quash France as in having France, suddenly it becomes like disgusting to him. Um, I feel like symbolically as well, the, the niece is like a sort of um, Penelope figure from the Odyssey. She's sitting there, you know, as Penelope at her tapestry and she's sort of knitting and she's batting away these suitors waiting for her Odysseus, whoever that's going to be. I don't know, the Americans who come and, you know, sort things out or whatever. But just um, in terms of, yeah, I mean, I, I do think it is a bad resolution of the Oedipal story. I'm reading my notes and they're not very clear to me, actually, so maybe I've even confused myself. But there is, um, it, it does have this Oedipal, Oedipal symbology, you know, the the niece, the no, in terms of the uncle, who's the sort of the head of the house, and then this 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 um, desiring presence. Um, but I, yeah, I don't think the resolution is quite quite gets at something um, potentially dialectical and interesting. Um, I think I'm going to save the rest until later in terms of this question of what resistance is. Obviously, the French resistance was something quite different to the silence of a woman resisting a man. Um, but we're going to talk about Roe v. Wade on the B-side. So I do have a lot of thoughts about what constitutes um, political action and what constitutes breaking the Borromean knot of toxic jouissance. All right. So Helen's going to hold some of that. So let's go to Nina. Right. Uh, well, thank you both for your readings. Uh, I chose this film. It was actually a suggestion of my friend Lev uh, of Morbid Books, who is a, a keen listener to the show, um, and he would like he liked he, he liked the idea of us discussing it. So uh, I, yeah, I have a slightly different interpretation of the film um, than both of you, but I did appreciate uh, what both of what you were saying. I. Obviously, it's an extremely beautiful film. It's Melville's first film. It's astonishingly assured for somebody's first film, I have to say. Uh, it's a remarkable piece of work. It's obviously based on the book, but the, the cinematography is, uh, is uh, splendid and there's some unbelievably beautiful images, um, particularly to do with the, the use of eyes and there's an angel uh, statue in the in the room. Uh, the, the kind of emphasis on gestures, there's a very important moment where they talk about hand gestures and the, how you can tell more from a gesture uh, than from what someone says. And I am actually, I, I appreciate why uh, Benjamin read this film in the context of his uh, recent uh, experience. Um, and 
I appreciate the point about Beauty and the Beast, although I read Beauty and the Beast slightly differently in the sense that I think it's very important in the story that she is the one who actually decides to go back to the Beast. And I think that the transformation story of the Beast into the Prince is not so much about how uh, what you really want is uncovered, but but the, rather you learn to see the beauty and that which initially appears to be horrendous. So I think the Beast is the same character, uh, the same person if you like in the in the in the story it's it's merely a matter of interpretation and i think in this story the the german officer is of course highly accomplished uh you know sensitive poetic appreciative of france um we know that this doesn't prevent someone from also being a monster. If you if you look at Pasolini's Salo, it's very clear that the appreciation for the absolute uh, uh, finest uh, civilization or offerings of humanity is completely compatible with the most grotesque violence. Right. So we know that someone merely merely someone being cultured does not uh, protect them or prevent them from having a relationship to anything horrific. Indeed, it can be a kind of cover story. Nevertheless, I read this film actually uh, in terms of an analysis. I read the um, the the silence of the uh, the French uh, people who who are who have this imposition. The the German officers obviously billeted at their their house, and they have no choice in a certain sense. And obviously, we can talk about passive resistance, and their silence is uh, a form of of resistance to an occupation which is unwanted. Nevertheless, I think the encounter with the reality and indeed the mystery of somebody else compels a relation which may or may not be, you know, articulable. Um, and in the silence, I think actually that the uh, the niece uh, undoubtedly has some romantic feelings for the officer, which is indicated by the fact that her hands tremble and so on. And even if we think that his gaze and his speech is an imposition, um, she cannot help but not be indifferent. Same for the uncle who even, uh, it's, I don't think, I don't quite agree with Benjamin that he's awaiting the return of the officer when the officer goes to Paris with only trepidation. I think the complexity of his, of his feeling is mixed in the sense that he both wants that he's become used to the German officer, indeed admires him in some way, appreciates his presence. Um, and is also kind of intrepidation of it. There, when the officer stops doing the ritual appearance, there is also concern for the officer. It is not merely um, negative. And I think this is this is very very complicated about what it means to actually be confronted with the reality of a particular individual, even if that person is a bearer of something that you hate. Um, and so, I think the analytic confrontation in this film is to do with the if you like the the quality of listening that the um the two french individuals engage in the fact that the officer is extremely uh, confessional in many ways it's a, it is like a kind of uh, analysis in a certain way the way he speaks we could say he presents a story about his life he tells you uh, vignettes of a very interesting vignette about this this German woman that he's seeing and he realises that in a moment where she pulls the legs off an insect that's bitten her, a fundamental cruelty and a fundamental sadism, not only that's part of the uh, woman's character, which immediately uh, breaks his in, in, infatuation with her and she becomes repellent to him, but also is an indicator as he sees it as a, of a 
tendency in the German character and the German psyche towards sadism, um, which I think is a very interesting idea that there can be a national pathology in this way. And I, and this is sometimes used as an explanation. I don't know how convincing it is. I'm not sure. I think cruelty is a capacity that we have qua human that we all possess. I, I wouldn't want to tie it to a particular national character, although we can talk about national character. There clearly are differences in laws, there are differences in culture. Um, I, you know, but there is a, there is an idea that there is something precisely in the German psyche, whatever that would mean, the national psyche, uh, that precisely needs taming and, or a civilizing in all the ways that I think both Benjamin and Helen have, have indicated. So I think, I, I would like to read this as a as a as a as an analysis as a, as a a film or this is just an interpretation. Obviously, that's not really what it's about as such. But it, my interpretation in terms of this is what struck me as I as I watched it and thought about how this would operate if it were seen as a kind of psychoanalytic encounter or, or an encounter that has the form of a psychoanalysis. Um, and in a sense that the also that the German officer is drawn to particular conclusions, of course, on the basis of his encounter with the with the other Germans who he also used to love, who were also sensitive, who also loved poetry, but are nevertheless talking about concentration camps, about genocide and about the destruction of France. And it, it's it's done very bluntly um, in a way. I, I am impressed, however, that this film was allowed to be made or was made, allowed, who, who allows these things, but was made not that long after the conclusion of World War II. I mean, it, it's, it's. I think, if, whatever we think of the German officer, it is a remarkably human portrait of somebody who is not reduced to uh, a class or a nation of people. It is someone at odds with his a nation or, or at least with the political tendency of Nazism um, and is in that sense extremely sympathetic. This is not a victorious film. This is not a film that says, ah, oh, we've crushed our enemies, you lost. And obviously the novel it's based on, which I haven't read, but was written when nobody knew the outcome of the war, right? This is a book that was written, uh, that was circulated among people who were in the resistance. It became like a pro-resistance novel, you know, that people drew strength from, as far as I understand it, right? During the period of um, occupation. Um, but obviously nobody knew what the outcome would be. It's, uh, and again, it's like possession in that regard. What is it to look at a piece of work or to read a piece of work that's still in the situation it describes when we know what has actually happened? You know, what the, it's, it's actually quite complicated. Of course, the film is made after the war. The novel was written during the war. Um, and I, but I think there is something about this, um, this encounter with, um, the other's humanity that is kind of intractable and um, sort of endless. And it is, of course, possible to fall in love with somebody um, that you do not uh, necessarily have a conversation with. And I think it's very important to be precise that it is the young woman, the niece, who says the only word to him, which is adieu, which is goodbye at the end in this very beautiful scene. It's... it's um, I, you know, this is the only word that she says to him. And it's in a way an indication that she is calling the shots ultimately, that she has made the decision to let him go to his either inevitable death at the uh, Eastern Front or wherever he's going, 
or that he will commit some act of sabotage or treason, perhaps because he's been inspired by the Anatole France thing about not um, obeying criminal orders, right? We don't know. Okay, it's left it's left obscure. But but the moral capacity of the German officer is left completely open, and he does not force himself on the family beyond that which he's been appointed to and billeted to the to the house. Um, so I think this is a very uh, beautiful and and psychoanalytically rich film about the mysterious kernel of the other and the fact that we we actually feel great sympathy um and um we respond whether we like it or not to another in proximity um not always in the way that we think we we should or might or can yeah yeah so, uh, go ahead first ellen that's fine I was going to say, no, I think it's really interesting. And, and um, the, this is the thing, because like, really is the turning point when he confronts, his, when he hears what his friends, other fellow officers have to say, or is the turning point in the transferential relationship between him and the silent parties in the house, which is like, as you say, the analyst. And, um, you know, in this transference, counter-transference, where not much is said, you still... <laughs> can see yourselves in the eyes of the other by your extra like the externalization of your um inner monologue is enough to be listened to you know <laughs> to be heard is almost enough um and so exactly. then we can say that when he encounters these people in paris for a second time potentially having already known this it takes on a new meaning um and the transformation happens through the tra- transference and counter-transference of the act of being listened to. Yeah, so I want to say Nina is completely correct uh, to point out these details that my reading kind of de-emphasizes or passes over, in part because the film is sympathetic to the German officer, and I'm not. <laughs> and that's the, I really like the film, but I'm not sympathetic to the German officer. Uh, and and I, I've never been one to say, you know, I, I think that I don't think there's any kind of national pathology or that there's any particular national essential German way of being. I think that the way Germany treats other states is a function of Germany's power. If a state is powerful, it tends to treat its neighboring states badly. When France was powerful, it tended to treat its neighboring states badly in the Napoleonic era, which is briefly gestured to in this film. When the officer goes to Paris and sees Lac de Triomphe and the discussion of Napoleon's victories, you know, there's some awareness of that. Uh, but I think ultimately the reason, in addition to just what happened to me this week, that I, I've never been one to say that if I were born in Germany and I were of the age where you could be conscripted into the Nazi army, I've never wanted to, to be the, the, uh, prideful person who says, well, of course I wouldn't have joined, or of mm. course I would have resisted. Who really knows what anyone would have done? You can never say what you would have done in that situation. Uh, I, I, I've, I'm not big on the whole uh, Nuremberg thing, trying ordinary Germans for the crime of having been Nazis or the crime of having participated in or followed the laws that were laid down to them by their state. Uh, you know, I think that responsibilizing individuals for all of that is a mistake and is not right and is not fair. However, if I were a Nazi officer and if I were billeted in a house, I would never come down 
the stairs and enter the room where the people were in and talk at them. I would never do that. I think it is an incredibly rude thing to do and an incredible imposition by the Nazi officer to inflict his conversation on people who clearly are not responding to him because he thinks he has the right to try to talk them into liking him. And I've had a number of people in my life, not just this person, but there's somebody that I'm kind of trying to get away from, an old friend of mine who isn't really accepting it. And this friend of mine continues to send me messages and emails trying to get me to talk to them. And I don't really want to have the friendship anymore. So I've been not engaging. And this person thinks that they're entitled to just uh, batter me with endless, unsolicited, one-sided conversation until uh, I respond. And this is an imposition. The Nazi officer is making an imposition. And as he's doing it, he's trying to justify himself with reference to Briand and Beauty and the Beast and all this other stuff, which is just him trying to justify and rationalize the fact that he is not just billeted in this house, that he's not just invaded this country, but that he's in this room talking at these people. And the people, you know, credit to them, credit to the, the old man and his niece that they're able to sympathize with him. And Nina's quite right. They do clearly sympathize with him. Initially, maybe they feel the way that I described them to have felt. But by the end of the film, they do very clearly sympathize with him. Uh, I, I couldn't get there. Uh, listening to him just made me like him less. <laughs> um, it's very, there's so much I have to say, and maybe I'll, I just made some notes there because I was just, Benjamin's words made me realize what I was trying to say or trying to get to the, be able to say in the intro in terms of freedom. And maybe I, it'll take a while to get there because really, you're talking about material conditions, us being an emergent of material conditions, and not only that, us through our subjectivity being an emergent of the conditions of our early childhood. And we are free because we are an emergent of those conditions, because we wouldn't be an emergent of those conditions without... We, we wouldn't exist without those material conditions, which are a result of imperfections beyond our control. But we obtain our freedom in enjoying our symptom, right? So we obtain our freedom. So, I mean, it was funny, you know, we did the political quiz like uh, at the end of last year. And I think like my result was like I was 100% materialist or something, which I was like, that can't be true. But then actually I kind of realized, I kind of think I am, which also is wrong, you know? <laughs> Although I think it's right because I could just say, <laughs> this is a great thing about like being a table, just say anything and then just say both sides are true, but not true at the same time. <laughs> anyway, like so. But the point being is that it's in <laughs> embracing your unfreedom that you are free. And so this will come, I think, when we have a conversation later about what political action is, maybe we'll come into it. But by the way, just about what Nina said about like this guy, you know, so the, the national spirit or the national pathology or whatever, we are all just as we are tied to this larger whole beyond our control, we are, everybody is an exception to the rule. And that goes without fail. Everyone is an exception to the rule. Um, and that's why, you know, it is right to humanize him. The other thing is that is really depressing. So Melville, I think this is his own production company. He set up a production company and he made, you know, he directed it and it is beautifully shot. Like I honestly, 
starting watching it, I was like, what are these lenses? What is this beauty? It's unbelievable. It's unbelievably good. Um, but he also, I don't know if I'm right, I think he set up Edition de Minuit in the World War II, which is still going to distribute resistance literature. And it really is like, fuck, what a time that you could do that. I mean, maybe, maybe people are doing this now, right? Maybe people are creating this art that is, as you say, it's astonishingly close. It, I think in our, in our cultural, ideological extremity age, we're like, how are people widely watching something so nuanced at a time when they should be so, you know, they feel like such victims? And also that it was, you know, even during World War One, uh, World War Two, during a time of propaganda, that this was able to get through. And it isn't just like, you know, oh, this is an artist unrecognized in their own time. This is like somebody who was widely watched and widely read. And it just is very depressing related to our age, right? <laughs> anyway. Mm. I mean, just on Benjamin's point about whether. It, you know, about liking or disliking someone. I, I actually, I think it's a bit more complicated, which is to do with something like freedom is the, I don't know, being able to be um, feel ambivalent about someone, right? Like, I think this is what it is. It's not whether they like him or not. I I, know, I appreciate that, that, that maybe some of his behaviour would be perceived by as obnoxious. Some people might find it charming, whatever. There's, it's to do with this um, capacity, I think, to to feel multiple things or at least two things about the other you know it, it and that's what freedom is so even if someone is imposed on you if you like or even if someone is behaving in an oppressive way and th- and this gets very complicated of course like you know the the amber heard and johnny depp trial is on at the moment right and this is a very spectacular uh version of let's say a bad relationship apart from whatever else it is you know like this is somebody's bad relationship or two people's bad relationship being put on show right and I, and I think but in every relationship even let's say a good relationship right there are moments of ambivalence that or or indeed ambivalence is the kind of structure within which you might also say, well, actually, I really like this person. I'm really glad I'm with them. They're great. You know, like these are all the things I love about them. You know, whether it goes for your friend or perhaps someone you're not, uh, uh, you don't choose to spend time with. I mean, you can't choose your parents, for example. You know, this is an interesting question to do with consent. Can you consent to be born, for goodness sake? No, nobody consents to being born. <laughs> and yet here we are. Um so I, I, I think I would sort of defend the, the, the complicated ambivalence <laughs> of being, a, but it's, but it's having the freedom to feel ambivalent or to be ambivalent. And I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what that is exactly, but I, I think somehow ambivalence and freedom are intimately related. Yeah. We, we only are human subjects because of ambivalence. You know, we were talking about, perver- I think I was mentioning perversion in relation to Don Draper a couple of weeks ago. In relation to the fact, you know, in, in Freud's question of repression, it's like we only have, um, so, you know, so, societies because of repression, but so, societies create repression. Like it's all ambivalent. It's ambivalent all the way down. You know, like we are only it's only the 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 disjuncture in the whole that gets anything going, desire that creates anything. And so we will always be marked by ambivalence and the ideological. Obviously, we can 
be free to dislike people. Like it, we can only dislike people because there's a possibility yeah. of liking someone. So I think in Benjamin's point, yeah. there is still an inherent ambivalence in being able to despise somebody. But it's the so you have that level of like I hate them and I choose to hate them, knowing that in order to have on you have to have off, in order to have love, hate you have to have love. But then this what ideology does is it says that there's no such thing as ambivalence denying the fact that to say there's no such thing as ambivalence there has to be ambivalence in the first place so it, like ideology always fails right you know yeah i don't think that there's a a black or white kind of moral duty to have any particular feeling i can understand certain kinds of people who are maybe more more extroverted having an easier time <laughs> with something like this than I would. For me, it would be very hard just A, to have him there, and then B, to have him impose himself and to do it with this idealistic claptrap about you know, f- making France his bride. Uh, that, you know, that would just aggravate, aggravate I, me I, I, so in much. Terms of, in terms of personal experience, I, I've probably lived with more people in a more random way in in my house than probably most people have i you know for a long time i my i gave my spare room to whoever needed it you know and that would include i don't know it was a lot of different people let's say in very different economic circumstances including one guy who was like an asylum seeker who lived here for two years or, you know, random political activists who didn't have any money or claimed not to, you know, like, so I, I think probably I have a higher tolerance for, uh, I don't know, sharing any of my, my in inverted commas space. But I think this is my residual attempt to be a communist in one person, you know. Well, I've, I've met people <laughs> don't, don't and, and had friends who, live, yeah. who have lived on communes. And I just yeah. have endless admiration and respect for the capacity to live on a commune or, or on mm. an ashram or in a monastery. To me, yeah. the thing that is the fundamental obstacle, it's not all of the, you know, all the rules or uh, the fact that it's a spiritual life or any, anything like that. It's just having other people in, in space, having to share all the space with all the people all the time. That's what gets me, not mm. having the, the private room in which to think. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. That, that's what I really struggle with. Because it sounds like you were saying recently about how writing that you, you feel the need that like you, you to have this continuum of space and of thought and being interrupted. It's like you have to keep going. Do you? I think that is true of everybody writing, but maybe you in particular like that kind of one thing at a timeness. Well, as we've discussed on this show, I am a little bit of a control freak, and my <laughs> box that I can think and write in that I could, you know, can continuously be in, can continuously work in, and which I have control over is very important to my sense that the universe is an okay place in which I am safe. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Mm, it's weird. I, I think I think that space, I have the same space, but it's like in my head. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I protect something, but it's not necessarily in the world i mean i also say this as someone who does have my own office right so i'm you know it's not like i am writing from inside a i don't know a a teeming commune right um so but i do i think the sense of i can preserve a sense of self without needing to have it Mm -hmm. physically sometimes no it's very interesting and some people absolutely thrive off 
human contact. And some people just, uh, it's, I don't know, it's to do with like the management of the other and like how much enjoyment you get from the other and whether you feel like an invasion. Um, yeah, and I think there's, mm. I don't think it's just to do with like subject type of structure or anything. But so interestingly, like just talking about the, the singular and the universal. So like obviously what happens in this film with one person's action going to basically, you know, sacrifice himself slash kill himself on the Eastern front or whatever is not designed or we can't interpret it to be like the absolute word on a resolution of conflict or a resolution or or, or the resolution to even this story even though I do think like this is a very symbolic and deliberately symbolic thing but this idea of um singular responsibility well a it's like it's, it's kind of difficult to talk about philosophically because it's like well what is the singular responsibility? Is singular responsibility really anything? Is it ethical to act as if you have singular responsibility? What is the resolution to a war? I mean, the thing is, I do think Dylan Morin says war isn't conflict, it's the inability to do conflict. So the fact that they're in a war at this stage, it's almost too late, right? <laughs> like all this, these ideas of like, you know, how to deal with conflict, how to deal with ideology, like once it's in the state of war, like, shit happens you know you, you can't just like take things lying down or whatever but i always think mm-hmm. of, i do think the end of the northern ireland conflict is an interesting one in terms of so i say conflict i should say war even though it was it is a civil war sort of yes but like the, the, i think the resolution is an interesting one in terms of what a good resolution is but at the same time I don't think there was any choice in the resolution. I think it was to do with the fact that it went on for so long that everybody, like, that the symptom is worse than the cure. You know, and this is at the point when we go to psychoanalysis when we don't have a correct orientation towards our symptom and our symptom is killing us. (laughs) And so we have to face the thing that the symptom is a fetish over. So in a way, like, maybe it's not like whoop whoop Northern Ireland's so great, we did it. It's like, that was just, an, that was almost the worst case scenario. And it got to that stage that we couldn't get, couldn't get out of the war. So is the solution, it, it just seems very nihilistic to me to be like, right, I'm just going to kill myself, you know? <laughs> well, part of what's weird about this is, you know, the, the book is written in 1942. So at that time... It's an occupation of a defeated country. It's not that Germany is no longer at war with France. There is no war between France and Germany in 1942. There is an occupied part of France and then a Vichy puppet state. And neither of those are at war with Germany. There are resistance fighters who are still fighting in the name of a dead regime. But France is not at war as such. Uh, mm-hmm. It's occupied. And there's this process of coming out of war. And if you are to come out of war, if you've taken territory as a state and you're occupying it and you intend to annex it or to set up some kind of puppet administration, whatever you intend to do, you have to somehow get out of the war footing and achieve a way of relating to the people that you were previously fighting. So just as war is a failure of conflict, somehow when you actually win the war, you then have to re-encounter the problem you previously had from a different standpoint. And nation states are very bad at this because nation states have self-concepts that don't allow themselves to easily 
incorporate occupied people or occupied territory, people who don't have the nationality. So when a nation state invades territory with people who are not viewed as part of the nation, it has a very difficult time relating to those people as anything other than occupied, second-class, apartheid subjects. And that's part of why nation states struggle to conquer territory or to expand in the way that uh, other states in earlier periods of history did. Yeah. So how can Germany incorporate France? What would it even mean to do that? Germany has a concept of itself as a German nation, and the, the Nazi ideology is tearing all the different European peoples in terms of how German they are and putting them into these levels and classes of Germanness. And, and this way of thinking is a product of the completely screwed up uh, Nazi nationalist, uh, ethno-nationalist ontology that mm. makes it impossible. And this is why Nazi Germany was always doomed. It's an expansionist state with a self-concept that is so exclusionary that it excludes yeah. even people who are inside exactly. Germany. Even you know Jewish Germans, even Catholic Germans, Germans who are different in all sorts of ways are excluded, let alone non-Germans. So it's not possible for that state to sustainably expand because it has no way of relating to subject people. It can't turn them into citizens. It has no way of doing that ontologically. Yeah, and I, I think the idea of expansionism in the concept of like Lebensraum, the idea that Germans need living room, like more space... I mean, again, yeah, exactly. Is is is? I mean, it's a fantasy of quantity, you know. And and it's clear that the Nazism was a kind of enlightenment endpoint in a way, you know, like in terms of industrialization, in terms of expansionism, in terms of quantity. And this is, you know, what the Frankfurt School point out, you know, in a way. So it's like the fully enlightened world radiates catastrophe, right? Like the the culmination of the enlightenment is can only be horror. You know, because yeah, it consists in these dogmatic definitions of terms, which become more and more detached from reality to the point at which they can't support a functional politics. Yeah. And that's what really goes on in Nazi Germany. It's what goes on in revolutionary France, where equality is taken as the kind of term. And it's its definition is fought over to the point where it can't sustain or legitimate anything and anything which you try to use, uh, which you try to build any kind of state that they tried to build in revolutionary France would run afoul of some form of the definition of equality. No one could establish any kind of clear connection to that term. And yet a connection to that term was essential uh, and non-substitutable. And when you get into that situation, the, a state cannot function and it must necessarily collapse. Well, yeah. The, the problem with totalitarian ideology is never total enough. It precisely isn't total. It's exclusionary. It doesn't incorporate contradiction and it will always fall into self-contradiction. So by the way, this is the thing. So I was just looking at this quote. I was going to read it out. Um, but they say, he sa I can't remember who says this, but it must be the German dude because he's the only one talking, except the narrator does talk sometimes. But he says about the beauty and the beast when he's saying it, I think. He says this union... Oh, uh, no, 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 this must be the ratio. The ratio says this union, as he imagines it, is impossible because the beast doesn't um, aspire to conquer uh, the beauty in order to, um, you know, be at one with her, but rather to destroy her. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because this is the master-slave dialectic. <laughs> And by the way, this is uh, this is the seriously annoying like use of um, let them eat political slogans where like this 
aesthetic non-left, which is like so tied to capital, which is like the right, the extreme right wing of today, like uses all of these terms because they sound vaguely leftist, like master slave dialectic, and gets it completely ass about tit, like, like the complete opposite. Because like the master slave dialectic is to do with, and it's you know in, it's during the part you know phenomenology spirit where we're sort of talking about the kind of um, Greco-Roman culture where you have the citizens and the slaves. And basically the masters, it's not really to do with one person has power over the other. Like it's to do with the fact that in a society where one is considered human or a citizen and therefore a dialectic contradictory being with subjectivity and the other isn't, it will always fall into self-contradiction and like destroy itself because you need, as Nina points out, you need the gaze of the other to see yourself. And it is in the gaze of the other. So the human other, the uncle and the niece who... To be fair to the German officer in his humanity, he necess- he reads them as human beings because he's able to have this trans- the fact that he does transparency upon them shows that they're human, even though like in transparency you kind of think that somebody's like superhuman and then you're gradually disabused of the fact um, through yeah, the sort of play of transparency, counter-transparency. But like you need the other in order to see yourself and to have a grasp of who you are, how you're acting and what you're doing. Peter, as part of his pyrotheology project, does something called um, the Evangelism Project. So he has, he has all this like uh, part of his like philosophical project, these kind of like techniques and there's lots of different ones. But the Evangelism Project is like you go, this was when he was within the Christian world to like other communities, not to evangelize to them, but for them to evangelize to you, who you, who you are in their eyes. And the master-slave dialectic is about that, that if you have this dialectic of the citizen and the other, it will necessarily implode because you need, the, you only exist in so far as the other exists. And as soon as you eliminate the other, you destroy yourself. And it's not to do with like, the men have control and the women don't. Like, that's just not what the master-slave fucking dialectic is. Sorry, I so annoyed. Well, I mean, if you know, if you read the Hegel, I mean, it's 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 very important that it that that the slave, so so to speak, or the uh, it's is what's the German? Is it Herrennacht in German, right? So that the uh, the slave actually has freedom in the fact that he works on the world, and the the the, the master does not because he's dependent on the slave for recognition and and for you know bringing things to him and so on. However, you want to read it, like whether you want to read it civilizationally or interpersonally or whatever, um, you know. So, so I, I mean, we know that there are no pure victims, just as there are no pure perpetrators, right? I mean, Sartre's line, uh, you know, uh, she was a, a an a half accomplice, half victim, like everybody else, right? It's it's like everybody is both, kind of all the time. Um, and I think when we're talking about when we have these periodic moral um, panics or outbreaks in which we want to say that one group is wholly bad and one group is wholly good, this is a tendency and a temptation, right? But it is pr- pr- profoundly to misunderstand the dialectical and psychoanalytic and interpersonal relationship that we have. It's, but this is not to deny that some people do terrible things to other people, right? It's precisely only on the basis of this dialectical reality that they can do those terrible things. 100%. You know, and often what we hate, 100%. What, often what we hate, what what we hate in somebody else, quote unquote, is because they're too like us. 
you know, that if we if we have a sort of immediate weird, uh, almost incomprehensible antipathy to somebody we don't know, it's often because they're like they're kind of like us, or we see something in them. You know, like a, a, a particular drive or a particular ambition or a particular strategy that they're engaging in that we recognize in ourselves. <laughs> you know, it's like we're so close to our own self hatred when we dislike somebody else, I think. Uh, I think also there's this horrible tendency to, if you see someone do something that you don't like, to ascribe it to their essence. Mm hmm. Just as if we see a, you know, a German person or a particular mm -hmm. German government do something that we don't like, to ascribe it to the essence of Germanness. In the same way, when we see a particular person do something that's a terrible thing, to say that they're a terrible person and to describe people with words that are better used to describe acts. Mm -hmm. No, totally. It's like blame the sin, not the sinner. But the thing is, it's like it's so much more comforting to do that because... As soon as you don't, as soon as you, a, a, philosophically, just as you said, Nina, they're only able to do a bad act insofar as ambivalence exists. <laughs> like, they can only take action as a human subject because of contradiction. Like, so at every moment, this is the, like the, the world offers it, itself philosophically to us in every moment. Every moment there is a political possibility. And, but it's so soothing to ascribe things to essence, because as soon as you don't, suddenly the universe opens itself up as its chaos moth self, because you're basically saying there is, you know, you are free in your unfreedom. There is no totality. There is no essence. And um, this, you know, it's interesting that the, the Nazi does sort of ascribe this essence to Germany and to France, all these different, you know, saying like Shakespeare in England and obviously in France, these mm -hmm. millions of authors or whatever. Um, but it is this tendency, this ideological tendency, but, but at the same time, you know, I do, obviously, I think we all believe that like one is an emergent of one's, uh, environment, not in terms of, you know, this sort of personality test. This is you, this happened to you. So this is you, but in its complete random contingency where it can, it is kaleidoscopically infinite, that you become you as an emergent of your material conditions and of your upbringing. Yeah, I think that ambivalence is in part a way we're able to feel about people because we ourselves exist in a context where we have the energy to go through the extra thought that is required when somebody does something that we don't like to not say it's because they're a bad person, to imagine some of the different reasons why it might have happened. And to imagine how that person might have gotten into such a situation that they would feel impelled to do that thing. Uh, and that requires a little bit of extra patience and a willingness to be a little bit creative when you encounter the act. And, a, and a, to, to be creative, you have to expend some energy. So when someone does something that you find really uh, distasteful, you have to burn energy going, okay, why might someone have done that? Uh, you know, why might a re you know an otherwise not bad person? I don't want to say reasonable because that sounds too Rawlsian. Uh, you know, why would an otherwise uh, you, know, you know a human being, a human being who's human just like you or me, why would they do something like that? Uh, and it just takes a little bit of energy. And I think what what I really don't like about this officer isn't the officer; it's the situation of having a person around all the time. 
Because if someone is around all the time like that, no matter who they are, he could have been Jesus Christ. The fact that they're around all the time would deprive me of the energy to encounter anybody with that kind of spirit. I would be unable to see the world in any form, in any complexity if I was constantly set upon by a person all the time. It would destroy my ability to think. It would destroy my ability to show grace. And, and that's what's really bad about it. It's the situation. It's not him. It's not even what he says. It's not even what he does. It's the fact that that kind of situation in my mind is an impossible situation for thinking. All right, we're at an hour, so we'll finish <laughs> up. We're going to go. We're going to talk about the Roe v. Wade thing and the, the leaked Supreme Court uh, draft. Uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some other stuff. We're going to have some fun. So do feel free to come on over and join us on the Patreon for that. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.